Hello, you. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you very much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose this weekend. Author Jojo Moyes pops in to fill us in on her brand new novel, Someone Else's Shoes. Comedian Susie Ruffle has news of the next leg of her tour, Snappy. Jessie Burton is in chatting about her latest book, Medusa. And we give our brand new competition a spin as we play Word Up. But before all of that, Maria and I put our heads together to solve your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Here she is to kick us off. The bloom that never fades is here. <laughs> oh, your links are getting more and more outrageous Aren't every week. they poetic, complimentary? Well, yes, but said tongue-in-cheek. No, no, sincere. No, no. No, I've been sarcastic for so many years now. Even if I'm sincere, well, it I just know. sounds sarcastic. Yes. Yeah. I watched your show last night. It was very good. Does that sound sincere? <laughs> yeah, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I watched it this morning on the train. Um, you know, Jack Loudon, who was on your television show we are speaking of. Jack Loudon off of slow horses and off things. Off of slow horses. I, I did not know he was Scottish, but I have long thought he reminds me of a young Richard Madden. Well, now, Richard Madden will be three, thrilled to hear that someone reminds you of a young Richard Madden. Richard Madden is young. He's nearly 40. Well, that Jack Loudon creature is in his 30s. Don't say creature. <laughs> contemporaries. Oh, are they? Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, everybody involved in that. <laughs> oh, they, I think they might have been at Scottish Drama School together. You're kidding me. I might have been. OK, I'm going to look that up. Um, but very good show last night. And I were they all lovely? But, um, Austin Butler, that's his name, uh, for it is he, who played, played Elvis. Elvis. Yeah. Now, the voice, I'm not buying that voice at oh, all. Did, now, because I know on the night I talked to him about the voice, was that not in? It, it was in, and okay. he sort of said, um, yeah, I'm losing the Elvis voice, because I know he kept the Elvis voice to do all the publicity junkets, etc. Well, no, no, it wasn't that he kept it, it's just he'd been doing it for three years, so it's hard to shake. Oh, come on. No, he'd been doing it all day, every day. You know the way that people... I know, but when you go to America and you pick up a few Americanisms and then you come back to London and you go back to London. Yes, because you've been on your holidays. He was doing it for three (laughs) years, all day, every day. And also, I don't know if they left this bit They did, when he sang, because he sang so much. Yes, that's what that rasp He's absolutely destroyed his vocal cords. That's, that's method acting, isn't it? Well, I think it's sort of someone who doesn't sing and not having anyone there to tell him you shouldn't sing that. Well, presumably he had trainers and all that sort of things. Yes, but I guess, but you know, if Baz wants another take... Can I just ask you a thing, which is a little personal? The suit that you were wearing... Yes. I mean, I know you have a lovely, lovely costume designer called... Lindsay. Lindsay, thank you. And um, I did not like it. Okay. It was. That doesn't seem like a question so much. <laughs> oh, yes. Did you like it? That's what I meant to say. Did you like that suit? <laughs> Up at the end. Um, it was, I mean, it looked very stylish, but on camera, because it was sort of like patchwork denim. I think what it is, I'm yeah. not sure, I never looked at it in a mirror, but I think what it is... I love that you, your lack of vanity, Graham. <laughs> no, no, it's because of my vanity I don't look in mirrors. Oh, oh. <laughs> I think it comes to a point when vanity means you really don't look in mirrors. Oh, I know where you're coming uh, from there. And, but and what it, are you going to say? What's it made of? It looks like a very expensive fabric. Yeah, it's, it's fabric, but I think it's got a photograph printed on it or a negative of a photograph or something. <sighs> it was probably something really dark and disturbing. Yeah. That people should have been offended by, but we'll never know. Oh, I see. People now, it dis- despite the guests that you've had on, people are now going to watch the show to freeze frame on your suit. You don't mind as long as you get the clicks, right? Yeah. 
yeah, exactly. Freeze frame on your suit to see what the negative was. And they'll discover it's crime scene photographs or something awful. Stop it! <laughs> no, no, I honestly probably Was it is. something like that? I don't it know just, what it to was. To me, it looked like patchwork denim, but, you know, it didn't look like anything offensive. But I just thought, oh, he's got nicer suits. Well, that if was If I was la- your mother, I would be going... Are you going out in that, Graham? <laughs> oh, no. That's a very bad impression I'll, of your mother. I'll be talking to my mother tonight and there will be a kind of like... She, she, I'll get the... That suit. Oh, please. <laughs> you must tell me tomorrow if Rhoda and I are on the same page. I'm guessing you are. <laughs> um, one last thing before you play a record. Nolly. Have you watched Nolly? Oh, yes. Isn't it fabulous? It's oh. on ITV Star. No, what is it? X. ITV X, sorry. <laughs> All that money on branding. I know. I think I do it on purpose. <laughs> Kevin Liger from ITV's just throw his radio across the room. I spent millions and McCurley's going, ITV Star, is that what it's called? <laughs> ITV Alibi. I knew it was one of those letters on my keypad. <laughs> ITV X. Um, but, ITV X. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, so good in that. Oh. And, uh, I mean, Russell T Davis, just his script writing is really lovely. I mean, it's incredibly nostalgic, if anybody remembers Crossroads. And at the very end, am I, is it a spoiler? Not really. No, at the very end, when they're all <laughs> applauding Nolly... <laughs> There's the real Tony Adams and the real um, Miss Diane, Susan Hansen. Better get her real name, probably. Well done. From the olden... VX. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) From the olden days. They're sitting, applauding, and that made a tear spring from my eye. Um, It's really, really good. Uh, Mark Gatiss was here last weekend talking about it. He plays... um, Larry Larry Grayson. Grayson. Um, I nearly said Larry Saunders. (laughs) Gosh. We should probably get out of this before yeah, while, yeah. while we know each other's names. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. More with that woman uh, after this. <laughs> Virgin Radio. OK, I've got a problem for you. In fact, I've got two, but I'll read them one at a time because otherwise it'll be confusing. Mm-hmm. Dear Graham and Maria, my husband is a football coach for a grassroots team and has been doing it quite happily for the last 10 years. Our son is also part of the team. Some of our son's school friends have recently joined the football team too and there's one particular boy, let's call him Tom, that is causing problems for my son. Tom hasn't been part of the team for long but he is continually moaning and criticising them, saying how rubbish they are. Pardon me. He's doing this most days at school. Did I just burp? <laughs> well, at least you didn't vomit. That's good. I, you know, let's let's let's, I think, let's focus on the positive. I think I took, took in too much air at the beginning of this problem. Sorry, I'm going to. I don't want to lose track here, or me to lose track. Uh, he's doing this most days, being nasty about the football team, and on their WhatsApp chat after every match. This is making my son upset, as the other lads at school are now joining in and he gets it in the neck most days. He's even said to me that he hates school and wants to go somewhere else, but this isn't really an option, as he'll be doing his GCSEs this year. We need your help, please. My husband would like to say something to Tom, but we can't make it look as if this information has come from my son, as then he'll be called a grass. Grassroots grass. My son has made us promise that we won't say anything, and if we do, then he'll never tell us anything again. We obviously don't want to break our son's trust, but we know this is affecting him and his friendship group and getting him down. How can my husband tell the boys he knows they're slating the team without it looking like it's coming from our son? And that is from Rebecca in Woking. Mm. Sorry, Rebecca in Woking. I had a big breath there. Um, So, Rebecca in Woking. Mm. 
This boy, let's call him Tom, if he thinks it's so awful and that it's so bad and so on, I mean, surely he can make it better. That is the whole thing about football, the team getting better and suddenly they're winning the league. A, he doesn't have to be part of the team. He can say, I'm not playing for this team anymore because it's too rubbish. I think this is all part and parcel of what young boys do. They oh gosh, this team is rubbish and we'll never win anything because, you know, it's banter. It's banter that they have. Um... I don't think you can say anything. Your your boy, your son is, what, if he's doing his GCSEs this year, 15, 16. These are some of the stumbling blocks that are part of growing up, having to deal with this sort of stuff. It's unfortunate that your husband is the football coach and your son is part of the team because everyone's going to moan about the team, everyone's going to moan about the coach, everyone's going to moan about everything, and then when they win, it'll all be forgotten. This is how sport works. Uh, if your husband is that distressed by it, um, take Tom off the team, unless he's a star player, you know, unless he's a ringer or whatever. Um, don't play him. Don't play him. You don't, And he'll soon get the message. If you diss the team, you don't get to play. But I would say you can't get involved in this because your son has to cope with this. He's part of a team that your husband is the coach of for and... You know, anything that you say, he says, your husband says, will get back that your son did it. So he's just got to... This is part of growing up. It is, it's tough, though, because, of course, the only reason um, Rebecca's son is getting this is because... His dad his is dad the coach. dad is the coach. So this is one of those boys. Tom is one of those boys. He wants to be a cool boy, but he's on a losing team. And it's very hard to be a cool boy if you're on a losing team. So you've got to blame someone else in order to keep your cool credit. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the boy you want to talk to. That's the boy you want to go, this is, you know, you've got to own this. I know, but because, you can't talk to him because nobody no, knows no, this. No, I know, you can't. You, you can't talk to him. I, I think in the end, Rebecca, you've just got to talk to your son and say, you know, that he's he's got to kind of not stand up for his dad, but stand up for the team. And kind of go, well, look, the team's only going to get better if we all, you know, yeah. uh, you know. First off, he's got to stand up for himself. And what's happening here is he's letting this get to him. And then he's going to his mum and dad. And, you know, you've got to just suck this up. Small yeah. boy of uh, plays for his dad's team. Or, you know, you leave your dad's team. If it's that bad, you leave. Let them all get on with it. You know, there are ways around it. But really, all it is, is dressing room banter, WhatsApp banter. I know that's another sort of version of it all. But don't take it personally. It's very hard, though, because it is personal. Because they're, they're dissing his dad. And that must be horrible to see. No, his so, dad isn't playing. His dad is the coach. No, no, but, but, they're, they're, but, they're, but, they're, but they are dissing. All, yes, but maybe they're all not very good. Well, no, I mean, I mean, you know reading between the lines yeah uh, the but, coach the coach isn't out there kicking that ball into the you know doing no, but the like kicking I say, ball but if cool kids want to keep their cool they've got to blame someone so they're blaming this guy's dad and this guy is obviously saying that person because it's his dad and you know and obviously he believes his dad is doing a, a good job of coaching the team it's I mean you because you do want to say if you're not enjoying it sling your hook but clearly they are, on some level, still enjoying it. They like playing football, they're enjoying it, but they ha they've got to do this to kind of give themselves some cred. 
but you know they're 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 distancing from the fact that yeah. they're not winning. I love the fact that you know all of this, given that you've never been in a football team in your life. Well, no, because it's just that's just, it's boy thing. It's isn't a boy it? thing. Yeah. It's just that's. What but goes I'm a on. bit cross with Rebecca's son for is it Rebecca? Yes, um, for for sort of not being able to deal with and saying I want to leave school. Well, I would. You would want to leave school? Yeah, because these guys are horrible and, yeah, you know, I just want to of Surely you would just say to them, well, don't play for the team if it's so awful. Or it'd be easier for... It'd be easier, actually, rather than leave school, leave the team. And Well, that's what I said. Yeah. He could leave the team, but that's kind of giving up as well, Rebecca's son. I mean, you know, the team is as good as the team. It will get better. It may get worse. This is how football teams work. That nobody starts off great. You've all got to work together as a team. And part of that, if I was a coach, I'd be saying it's a positive thought that we process we need, not all this negativity. Maybe you could just start with that, Rebecca's well, you husband. Well, you could do a kind of pep talk, but then, you know, these guys aren't stupid. They'll kind of go, that's odd. He's giving us that pep talk about not slacking off the team <laughs> during the week. And I wonder, could, could Rebecca's husband yeah. uh, take a break? Could he go away for a couple of weeks? And Rebecca stand in. Someone, <laughs> someone stand in. I'm, I'm guessing Rebecca is not going to take any rubbish <laughs> no. from this team. Uh, but maybe no, some of the, nobody I'm... needs to take a break from this. These are kids just being kids on a team. They're 15 years old. This is just how life works. And surely the husband, who is a football coach and has been for 10 years, is no stranger to this. You know, if a team is losing all the time, of course there's going to be dissent. Yes. But I guess that's easy for the husband because he's a grown man. Difficult for the son because he's taking it personally because they're, you know, they're attacking his dad. Yeah. Well, this is how life is, Rebecca's and Tom, son. And also Tom's an masterpiece work. And uh, so at least know you're not him. Dad responses are part one. And my favourite sponsors today will be receiving a Waitrose double chocolate brownies. Okay, you get four of them. Four milk and dark chocolate brownies slices topped with dark chocolate sprinkles. Rich, squidgy brownie made with milk and dark chocolate with hand sprinkled, hand sprinkled chocolate topping. It's in a box. You could wrap it. It's a gift. Uh, Waitrose double chocolate brownies. Right. Uh, Annie in Hertfordshire. Could it be that Tom is actually jealous of the relationship that the coach and his son have? The coach should just give a general pep talk and say, hey, as long as we all put together, blah, blah, blah. I like, I love it when blah, blah, blah is in the advice. <laughs> but I think it's actually to do with father-son relationships. You might be right, Annie. There's, you know, there's something going on. Uh, Claire in Glasgow's West End This sounds like bullying If the son wants to leave Then it's more than just dressing room banter Young men notoriously don't share their problems This boy has Don't undermine him by saying he just needs to get on with it He needs the tools to help him stand up for his dad and himself Get some advice about anti-bullying from the school Okay, Stuart in Leeds uh, he has an interesting take on it. I understand this is, a cha- is challenging for Rebecca's son, who must feel the isolation this brings about. Teenage years are about growing up and learning the tools to handle conflict later in life. However, I do wonder whether, given that the team has changed so much, there is the opportunity to use some of the training time to develop skills in leadership, communication and motivation. There are loads of resources online that will give each of these kids the chance to show their strong suit and all professional teams periodically do this sort of thing. Didn't know that. I mean, I was as I was reading that, I was thinking, maybe make Tom the captain. Because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's got to own it a bit. 
He's got to take some responsibility for the team. I wonder who is the captain? Are they joining in in the WhatsApp group? Are they doing anything? Is Rebecca's son the captain? We don't know. Uh, Karen in Hereford. I think Tom's undermining is psychological bullying and needs to be sorted by the coach. Dad needs to chat to Tom and the rest of the team, coaching them about teamwork and appropriate behaviour within the team. Tom clearly has issues. Maybe his own dad is unavailable and to him all dads are useless. It's a game. They should be enjoying themselves, whatever the outcome of the matches. Does mom have to go in and sort this out? Come on! Uh, very good. Thank you for all of that. I'm going to give the Waitrose Double Chocolate Brownies to Stuart in Leeds. Graham's Guide. Another letter, please. Yes, here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, my friend is getting married this year and has asked me to be a groomsman. I'm not particularly enamoured with the idea, but have agreed on the basis that it was easier to agree than not to. OK. My friend has told me and the other groomsman that he wants us all to wear matching suits, but doesn't want to pay for these. I have a perfectly good suit that I was planning to wear that now does not match the groom's chosen suit. The groom expects me to buy a new suit for a few hundred pounds, on top of paying a few hundred for the stag do. I fear that not buying the suit would damage our friendship, but also feel that he is being tight, and if he wants the perfect wedding, he should buy the suits or have fewer people at the wedding party. Should I buy the suit, and if I don't, how can I let him down easily? <laughs> that is from Ivan in Norwich. The Grinch in Norwich. Well, I like this because normally, I like normally this it's bridesmaids yeah, kind of moaning yeah. about this. But it, yes, boys suffer too. Boy, <laughs> a groomsman indeed. I think Ivan in Norwich, you agreed to do this. And when you say it was easier to agree than not to, until you suddenly thought, wait a minute, a couple of hundred quid on the stag do, a couple of hundred quid on the suit. What about if you say to your friend who's getting, wants all these suits bought, um, look, I can do the stag night, which is going to become... Or I can do the suit. I, I just can't afford to do both, mate. Cost of living crisis, all of that, gas bills, you know, kids at private school. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> you could do that. You could say one or the other. But, you know, you've agreed to do this. If you don't want to offend your friend, just suck it up. Or make a point by saying, I can do one or the other. I don't think it's unreasonable to say I can do the stag do or I can do the suit. He'll probably say, oh, don't come to the stag do then. Yeah, <laughs> then you'll get two suits. I think, Ivan, what Ivan should do is contact the other groomsmen and start a revolution. See, because, you're, you're always very of, divisive about getting... None of none of the other groomsmen want to buy a new suit either. No, about Nobody getting wants. people... And also, you don't want people looking at the groomsmen at your wedding going, oh, look, isn't that nice? They're all wearing matching suits. You want people looking at the bride, mainly, and the groom. You don't want people looking at the pe someone showing you to your seat. Is that what a groomsman does? But also, if you want the groomsmen to all look alike, they hire things. You know, no one wants a stupid suit that looks like everyone else's. They, you know, you hire them. Oh, what? That's genius. Why doesn't... Yeah, yes, that's good, Graham. Very, very good. We have workshopped this. Ivan, mm -hmm. tell, tell, get in touch. <laughs> tell him to... <laughs> Tell, get in touch with the others and say we can't afford suits. Shall we ask um, man who's getting married to hire the suits for us? Because none of us want any more suits that match his stupid outfit. But also outfit. they can hire them, you know, because that's much cheaper. What, if they hire them? Yeah. Then what? Then buying a new I suit. I but, well, no, but I think the, I think the bride's, uh, the groom should pay for the hire. Well, yes, but he's not paying for a, a whole new suit for them, so... Uh, I know, but hire will be cheaper. So yeah, if no, he exactly. hires however many groomsmen there are, yeah. five suits, hire for the day, 
or yeah, whatever. Whatever. Yeah, go to a fancy dress shop. <laughs> Get some clown suits. Get some yeah, poly- yeah. polyester things. <laughs> yeah, they all match. What's wrong with him? <laughs> Hiring uh, is good. It doesn't, you know, you still have to spend money on the stag do. But just say, I've got a perfectly good suit and all the other guys um, don't really want to spend money on a suit. So, Kat, what about if we hire them? Yeah. Or you produce your suit, Ivan, and kind of go, can they all match this one? Please? No, that's stupid now. <laughs> you came up with a really good idea and now you're adding to it, which is only not making sense at all. Okay, like hire, that sentence. hire, hire, hire suits. That's what you need to do. Um, uh, I'm sure people have other advice for Ivan and Orange but that is the best advice That's that was really good Graham yeah I mean I don't know how much they pay you but you've earned your money today and also I don't know if you can hire suits but uh, there you go of course you can can you hire regular suits or just morning suits and stuff I don't know well just hire morning suits yeah and then the groom will have to buy a new suit yeah. or sports equipment hire sports equipment <laughs> and... go with the squash racket <laughs> shush we're being silly <laughs> That responses part two, and my favourite responder will be getting a box of Waitrose double chocolate brownies. There are four of the milk and dark chocolate, and sprinkled with chocolate topping. There, I said it. John and Surrey, I had the wedding suit dilemma too. In the end, I bought a cheap suit for £20 that fitted the brief, albeit that it had loads of static... <laughs> no one noticed until I told the bride a couple of years later when it had a few drinks. They laughed about it. Wow. <laughs> Actually, you can get really cheap suits on things like ASOS, can't you? I mean, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Linda. Oh, yeah, and second-hand shops as well. Yeah, yeah, charity shops. We didn't say that. Linda from Surrey. He should consult the other groomsmen in the view to in the view to hire suits if they need to be matching. It's not that ethical just to buy suits that no one is going to wear again. Ethical or sensible. <laughs> It's neither of those things. Yes, Linda, I'm with you. Uh, groomsmen band together because none of them want to buy this suit. I suggest that you look up the word friend in the dictionary. Hire a suit or stop being friends. How would you feel if someone was moaning about stag do's and suits if it was your wedding, Sam and Edinburgh? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's not his wedding, is it? <laughs> and it's not, it sounds like it's not his best friend. It's to, you know, and also you say yes to something and then they spring this on you. You know, it's like you should have read the terms and conditions before you agreed. Uh, Joy. Joy's really thought about this. It feels like people have got really carried away with weddings and what they are really about. Far too much money is spent on having the perfect wedding at the cost of not just those getting married. If the wedding couple want to have perfection, then they should pay. Their friends shouldn't feel guilt-tripped into having to potentially go into debt to pay for someone else's dream day. A wedding is a celebration, yes, but at its core, it's about the bride and groom pledging their love and lives to each other. Too many people seem to have lost sight of that, and it's all about what looks good. I've witnessed long-standing friendships ruined over this very thing. The groom should stump up if he wants a magazine-worthy wedding. Joy, you are so... Right, of course you are. And also, it's all about these photographs that no one looks at again. I mean, the bride and groom might have a one, and the the mother of the bride might have a picture up on a mantelpiece, but no one else is looking at them. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right, Joy. Um, but, uh, but I think for an actual get-out-of-jail thing, uh, let's give the uh, Waitrose 
uh, double chocolate brownies to Linda with a Y from Surrey. Just brief and practical advice there. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Welcome to the show, Jojo Moyes. Thank you for having me. Uh, so lovely to see you. So this is exciting because it's j- your new book. It's just, it came out on Thursday? That's it, yeah. After my biggest gap ever, three and a half years. Wow. Was that a covid gap? Uh, well, I was going to take a year off and then the world kind of went crazy. <laughs> yeah, it kind went, of yes, wasn't you can. quite the gap year I'd planned, to be honest. Yes, when everyone's got the year off, it's not the same, yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah, there was not quite the travel and leisure that I'd had in mind. Uh, someone else's shoes is the name of the book. And, it, I mean, this has got lots of the things that people expect from you, but it is, it's lighter, what we say? I've, There's a, a slight romp element to it. Definitely. I, I don't know about you, but in this kind of rough intervening period, I'd had a bit of a bruising time and I just found that I wanted to watch and read things that were much lighter than usual. I couldn't do depressing. I I wasn't going to read A Little Life, put it that way. And um, so I just realised I wanted to write the kind of thing that I wanted to read and that is a bit lighter and funnier than my normal fare. And it's interesting because you, you've mined your own back catalogue in a way. This started with a short story. It did. Uh, it was a short story I wrote about 15 years ago about a woman who picks up the wrong gym bag and how it affects her day. And I'd been asked about it over the years. I do a lot of work in, in America and there were various production companies who'd said, oh, could you do something with this? And I, I always said no because I couldn't see it. And then one day I just thought, well, what happened to the woman whose gym bag was taken? And as soon as I saw it as a, a, a kind of almost like a Vanity Fair or a um, Desperately Seeking Susan type story of two very different people, then suddenly the plot came to life in my head and I wanted to write it. And that's interesting, though, that it, f- 15 years it yeah. sat there, this, that idea. Yeah, wow. well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I guess I was marinating a long time without <laughs> realising it. Uh, so tell us about the owners of these two gym bags. OK, so on, in one corner we have Nisha, who is the uh, 40-something trophy wife of a very rich American. And uh, she's quite spiky. She's not an easy person to love. Um, she's very beautiful and groomed and uh, puts a lot of work into it all. And on the other side, we have Sam, who works for a print company in Britain, kind of lower middle class. She's one of the squeezed middle. She's battling, you know, a a depressed husband, some fractious elderly parents who make huge demands on her, a teenage daughter, a boss who clearly wants to get rid of her. And it's what happens on a kind of crisis point in both their lives when they accidentally switch bags at the gym and have to literally walk in each other's shoes. And how... Well, particularly for Sam, that those shoes are... Well, they're ridiculous. They're, they're six-inch high Christian Louboutin, um, you know, glamour shoes. They're, they're, as one of the characters says, they're not for standing up in. <laughs> and she has to take a series of print meetings wearing, you know, what her colleague calls, you know, hooker shoes. <laughs> yeah, well, essentially, yes. <laughs> not for standing up in. No. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of... Then there's a, two other characters that are kind of pivotal yes. to the, the whole plot. Uh, so uh, there's also Andrea, who is Sam's oldest friend, uh, who is just coming out of a, a serious illness, but there's a sort of huge undercurrents to do with money and the, the fear of loss of a long-term friendship. And then we have Jasmine, who is a worker at the hotel where Nisha was staying, uh, uh, a single mum, and someone who is a kind of joy bringer and a kind of life force who manages to help Nisha get back on her feet. 
And once you came up with the, you know, uh, you had the idea, you had it 15 years ago. (laughs) What a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) How do you then develop it into a novel? Are are you a planner? Are you a a, a kind of plotting it all out? Are the post-it notes? I am a planner. I'm in such awe of people who just start and say, oh, I'm just liking, you know, I like to see where it goes. (laughs) That brings me out in an actual cold sweat, even talking about it. Also, because I like to have a couple of twists in my books and I can't... Uh, write a twist without having planned towards it. I feel like you need to make your reader forget something uh, in order to kind of surprise them with it three chapters on. Um, So things always deviate a little. I mean, there's the fun in it. But in general, no, I I am a post-it note and whiteboard kind of a girl. Yeah. And because, you know, your books are so global now, do you make a deliberate decision? So uh, Nisha's going to be American. Is that for the American market? Is it? Does that go on in your head? Um, no, I think there was just a sort of level of grooming. <laughs> I travelled a lot in America and uh, I just always found that women in America had a, had just a different level of care given to their appearance, especially later in life, whereas I think we Brits tend to be a bit more laid back, shall we say, about how we put ourselves together. Th- that's a sweeping generalisation, yeah. and no doubt I'm going to get in terrible trouble for it. But, but, um, but it's interesting, you, 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 there's an interview today in The Times with you, and you were talking about how there was pushback on making her unlikable. Yeah. Did you push back? Because I thought she was quite sympathetic. You do really feel for that woman in that situation. Well, you do further along, but she's quite rude to everybody at the start. And, and um, yeah, I, I always think that with... Sam, she's someone who internalises every bad thing that happens to her. And with Nisha, she's someone who pushes it straight back out on whoever's nearby. Um, So it was actually really good fun writing someone who was extremely rude uh, because it's something I would never dare do myself in real life. But it was quite (laughs) liberating to write someone who genuinely doesn't care what anybody thinks of her. You know, she spends the first chapter of the book running around outside in a dressing gown and refusing to move from hotel foyers (laughs) in a a dressing gown because she's demanding to get back to her yeah, access to her clothes yeah and i'm interested you were you were a writer by trade you were a journalist yeah for 10 years for 10 years and i always think you know people listening to writers being interviewed they always were like what you know because that thing everyone has a book in them da, of da, da, da. you really stuck at it how many full-length novels did you write before you were encouraged well i wrote three that were unpublished, that were rejected by publishers, and then I wrote a further eight before I had a bestseller. Wow. So, yeah, I've done my time, Graham. The three the three unpublished ones, though, because I kind of think, you know, uh, writing a book knowing it's going to be published mm. is hard enough. Yes. <laughs> writing a book that no one's going to publish. Uh, were people at least saying, oh, no, we like this, but... Pretty much. The first time I did it, I did it just to see if I could get to the end because I'd done that thing of trying loads of times to start a novel. And uh, I knew somebody who knew an agent and passed it on to her and and the message came back, you have a voice, but this isn't fit for publication, but keep going. And that was all the encouragement I needed. And the second one, uh, I can't remember why that didn't get published, but just wasn't good enough. And the third one, they said it was too masculine for the female market and too romantic for the male market. And at that point, I thought I might give up because I just thought I can't do this. And I had a baby and I had another one on the way and I had a full time job. I mean, that's the thing that baffles me, like children and a full time job. When were you doing this writing? Were you just were you up all night with a baby? So you kind of thought, I'll I'll keep typing. 
do you know, I, I look back and I don't understand how I did it because now I'm kind of drooling on a sofa at 9.30, but I would finish a shift and then I would go home, put the baby to bed, and then, then I would work. Because you were putting a paper out, so it wasn't yeah. like you could skive. <laughs> yeah, really laid-back job, that one. Um, no, I don't know. I just... I'm quite kind of stubborn, I think. I just had an idea that I couldn't see why I couldn't do this if I kept trying. I think, you know, we children of the 80s were brought up to believe that you, you could just do anything if you tried hard enough. I'm not yeah. sure that we have that same message today. Um, so I couldn't see why I should stop. Um, and then finally, after the third one was rejected, I remember feeling properly crushed. I think I went to bed for two days after that one. And then I had another idea about two months later, but I only wrote three chapters of that, sent it to the agent who'd agreed to represent me, and she just sold that. She she sold that to... Um, there was a bidding war. And I remember being so terrified during this bidding war that I would ring her up because it went on over a period of days. And I would just say, can we stop here? Because, like, all I need is money to repair my bathroom. I just... <laughs> I'm really frightened that if we carry this on, um, someone's going to just change their mind. And she had to say, do not, whatever you do, tell any publishers this. Stay out of this negotiation and just let me handle it. And um, in the end, yeah, I got enough uh, in, in, in an advance to be able to give up working at the newspaper, which was quite a relief as I was seven months pregnant at the time. <laughs> yeah, but I've heard you talk about how you then missed... Being a journalist, you, you I did. It took you a while to to become a novelist to well, know how to I'm be a novelist. Well, because I'm quite a communal person. I love being around people, and I think you know journalism is a weird job in many ways. But one of the things I loved about it was being among a tribe of people with all who had a kind of certain sense of humour and you're all working collectively towards a deadline every day. So there's a sort of joint enterprise feel to it. And suddenly I was living in the country in the middle of nowhere, spending 12 hours a day by myself in a kitchen. <laughs> and I was a bit lost and I, I sought therapy for it in the end because I couldn't work out why I felt so weird and dislocated. And in fact, 9-11 happened as I moved out and was by myself. And I remember ringing my news desk and saying, I can come in and help. And they were like, uh, Georgia, you don't actually work for us anymore. <laughs> like, you can't come in and help. Yeah, it's not a volunteer yeah. situation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that thing, you know, 10 years in newspapers, you have that idea that you must be at the centre of the, the action and help. Yeah. You really must miss that, I can imagine. Yeah. Not anymore. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I'm way too soft for it now. I mean, I was probably too soft for it then, but I just, I couldn't do the things that I had to do. You know, I used to get sworn at by cabinet ministers and stuff all the time, and I'm just... I'm, I would cry now. <laughs> <laughs> did you, you didn't do doorsteppy things, did you? Um, luckily, I worked for The Independent for most of it, which was okay. not really a doorsteppy newspaper. Yeah. But I did have to make calls that I was... You know, I once had to ring Gordon Brown on a Sunday morning and ask him if he was gay. That was an extremely <laughs> uncomfortable phone call, and he was completely gentlemanly and very nice about it. But just the random things you have to do that make you want to curl up and die. Yeah. yeah, or write novels. And or write be very, novels. Yeah, be which, very successful at that. Much yeah. more preferable. Yeah. <laughs> and now, because someone else's shoes is out now, are you down a world where you can do events and you can meet your readers again? Yeah, that's the nicest thing because I haven't met a reader. I haven't met my my reader since um, three and a half years, and I did my first audience event the day before yesterday, and it was. I'd forgotten how nice it is just to kind of get to chat to readers, and also I have nice readers. Like I have. 
a friend who writes thrillers who has lots of slightly sinister people who shuffle forwards and don't make eye contact. <laughs> I have loads of really smiley people who just want to chat and, and it makes me really happy. Yes. And also readers who find themselves in these books. I mean, because there's so, you know, these books are populated by very, as you described, really relatable women. Well, I think that's the thing you forget when you're spending 12 hours a day by yourself in a room. You forget that the, these stories even go anywhere and it's really nice to be reminded that they have some resonance for someone out there. That Yeah. That's the best part. Well, congratulations. Uh, Someone Else's Shoes is out in hardback now. Thank you so much for coming to see us, Thank Jojo you Morris. so much for having me. All right. Good luck! The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. I'm joined by one of the UK's top stand-ups, Susie Ruffle. She's back on tour. It's called Snappy. And it runs from the 15th of March to the 15th of June all around the country. Tickets available at susieruffle.com. Do you see all one word? Uh, hello. Good afternoon. Susie Ruffle. Oh, hello, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very excited to be here. I mean, I said this as I came in. I'm a real <laughs> fan of yours from back in the day of So Graham Norton and staying up late and watching it. Wow. So it's You don't it's look old thr- enough. And do you know what? I really appreciate you saying that because I am. <laughs> Uh, so snappy, snappy the tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, you like things snappy. I do. I'm always in a hurry. And I'm always doing 100 things at once. I, I think people keep telling me I've got ADHD. That's, that's my life at the moment. Like, I think you've got ADHD. My mother-in-law actually brought an article to our house. I was like, Susie, I think you've got ADHD. And I started reading it, lost interest, and now I can't find it. <laughs> so I think I've got ADHD. So it's sort of about the fact that I'm always trying to do 100 things and <clears throat> sometimes getting it right and sometimes massively not getting it right. But... It makes people laugh, yeah, so yeah. it's all worth so it. So it's all good. So this is the second leg of this tour. Yes, it is. So I went out in the autumn um, all around the country, did about 20 dates. It was lovely and it, it sold well because obviously after the pandemic, you're like, oh God, is it going to sell? Are people coming out? Yeah. We're in a cost of living crisis. I've tried to keep the tickets as low as possible, but you know, you want to make sure that there's enough interest. <laughs> and also, you want to make, make a living. <laughs> well, quite. Yeah. And so, um, so we put on the first leg. That sold really well, it all sold out. And then we're like, great, let's go out and do another sort of spring leg, like I'm some sort of rock star. So now I'm going back out all over the country and making little changes to the tour and trying to improve it all the time. But it's great, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, stand up, you know, it's great being out and meeting people and going around the country and going to these odd yeah. little venues. Well, also, I'm interested, how did you do that thing? Because obviously, you know, being a working stand-up is normally you go to clubs, you're on a bill, mm-hmm. you know, you're in a part of a lineup. Da, da, da. How did you make that leap into being right? I share this stage with nobody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just me. Well, do you know what? I think telly makes the difference. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, it, you know, getting the, the first little jobs here and there. I did a special for the BBC if about three or four years ago and that really accelerated things and meant that people were sort of a bit more aware of me and then I did a, a set on Live at the Apollo and then actually last night my I was hosting Live at the Apollo um, which was filmed earlier in the year so that went out last night and so it's doing the telly things that means that you can create an audience and also by podcasting and stuff like that so that my first tour which was about four or five years ago was just 12 dates and I thought, well, if I start touring, I'll just be someone that tours. And I just did tiny little rooms, yeah, yeah. you know, 60 was people. Was that the dance? As, as a... No, that was that was Dance Like Everyone's Watching, which is what my mum thought that sign meant. <laughs> you know, that she went, oh, yeah. I love that sign. I got one in Wilco's, Dance Like Everyone's Watching. And I said, mum, I think it's Dance Like Nobody's Watching. And I mean, she dances like everyone's watching and good for her, I say. Um, but no, that was a, that, that one ended up going on to like being an Amazon special. But so it was a few years ago, even before that, that I just... 
started touring so that I was someone that toured yeah. and just went to all these little venues and then and built my uh, built my audience and you know getting stuff on social media and stuff like that really helps but it's sort of taking the leap yeah and is Edinburgh how you also find out how to do a full length show a hundred percent yeah like this show hasn't been to Edinburgh uh, but I've done Edinburgh seven times and it's how you learn how to I mean, you won the Perrier, didn't you? No. You know how no. you Let's got say yes. nominated. Yes, I say did, yes, Susie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, don't, don't Google that anymore. I've, <laughs> I've won seven of them. Um, every single year, they were they're like, she's easy. back, they're, we love her. Yeah, they're oddly achievable. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I actually choose who wins, so that, that helps. But, yeah, just making it, uh, just learning how to be on stage for an hour. Because if you're having a great one, it feels like ten minutes. If you're having a bad one, it feels like four hours. <laughs> So it's for long. everyone. <laughs> Longer for the audience, I'd say. I always think I don't know if you're like this. I preferred when I used to do stand up. I preferred dying to watching someone die. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Being in the audience is worse. Oh, for sure. It's really, it's really unbearable. And we, and, we, and every stand up has had those gigs. I think people often assume that you're, you're great straight away. But the thing is, is everyone's quite bad. To start with. But also, sometimes you're not bad. Sometimes just an audience thinks... They're they're not into you. Yeah, they're just like, oh, this isn't funny. Yeah, I'm not... I don't like her. And you go... And then it's so personal, because you're like, well, this material works everywhere else, so I suppose it's just my personality that they're appalled by. I always thought, when when I I died, I always thought, this is the clever audience. This is... is, The the rest of the audiences were idiots. This is the discerning audience. I think it's, uh, it's... it's it's a lesson that all stand-ups go through. You, you di- <laughs> learning to die gracefully. No more though. No, no more. more. No, no more. Susie Ruffle. And actually, it is weird because because people have bought tickets to go see you because they know they like you. Yes, that's a nice thing. It's nice when you sort of, when you have people that come back year after year after year, or they've seen you on a thing, or they listen to a podcast and sort of like me and what I'm about. And so that's it's a real gear change in the last couple of years where. People aren't just coming to see some comedy; they're coming to see me, which is lovely. Yeah, we're Susie Ruffle fans. Hey guys, it's have you, just have you me, got Susie a, Ruffle. Have your fans got a name yet? Are they Rufflers oh, well, or something? Or? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> As of now, <laughs> uh, like Lady Gaga, you mean in her monsters? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what? Not yet, but I'm going to keep you posted. Yeah, the Rufflers. The Rufflers. Yeah, the Rufflers. Coming, Rufflers. Yeah. Here they come. Oh, wow, it's crazy out there tonight. The Rufflers are in town. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Now everyone has a podcast. That's, sure. That's a given. <laughs> yeah, of course. You have two. I do. Yeah. I mean, that seems greedy. <laughs> it is. It is. It's absolutely greedy. Uh, one you do with our good friend uh, Tom, Tom yes. Allen, who's often here at Virgin. Yes. Uh, so what's that one? So uh, that's called Like Minded Friends, which Tom and I found out was uh, code for gay people in like the early 1900s, where oh. you'd be like, oh, you can speak openly, they're a like-minded friend. So it's basically us two catching up every week. And some weeks it will be about tiling and what colour Tom's going for in his new bathroom. And other weeks it will be about stand up or about this or that the other jobs we've done and sometimes it's about you know something our mum said to us which was hilarious so it's just anything and the reason that we started it we started it six and a half years ago was because we weren't busy enough so we were like oh we should be those people that podcast (laughs) so we just started podcasting every week and we just sort of carried on because people really like it and if we don't do it they get in touch and so it's a lovely way to sort of stay in touch with people and put out something that's not 
you know, edited by somebody else. It's just us. We can just put it out and that's what it is and we, hope, and we think it's really funny and hopefully people So is people it one love. of those podcasts that are different lengths every time? Yeah, there are, it's about 30 minutes, but sometimes we're like, oh, I'm, I'm late for a train, bye! And it'll be 25 <laughs> and sometimes we get onto something and it's 40 minutes. But it's just, it's just a chit-chat every week and someone referred to it as gay white noise and we quite like that. That's all right, yeah. <laughs> and when did you go, Tom, you're holding me back, I need my own podcast? Um, during lockdown, he was, you know, just holding on to my coattails um, <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. No, I, I just wanted to do something in lockdown. I didn't, you know, work stopped, touring stopped. Yeah. And I thought, right, I just need to do something. And I always liked the idea of having some sort of interview style show. And so I sort of looked around and saw that there wasn't anything quite like what I wanted to do. So I've got a podcast called Out where I interview sort of inspiring and interesting people from the queer community and I've had on people like Dustin Lance Black and uh, Alan Carr and Gok and lots of different brilliant people, Dame Kelly Holmes and I just chat to them about their experience of coming out but more importantly how much it's improved their life by living authentically and it's sort of the podcast that I wish existed when I was 15 so I could have listened to it and gone oh I'm going to be okay, this isn't going to hold me back, this is a you know, I can make this into a positive thing about myself. So it's it ended. It was a it was a lockdown project that's now got enough of a listenership yeah, yeah, that yeah. I've continued making it. And also, it must be nice for you as a comic also to use a different voice where it's, you don't have to be funny all the time. Exactly. You could be other things. And I'm interested in people, and I like chatting to people, and it's been a great way to sort of get stories out there I've got skin from Skunk and Nancy coming on in the new series and doing like a link up with New York and so doing sort of quite cool things and chatting to interesting people who I wouldn't meet otherwise and you know just creating a space where people can just share their story which is quite nice and now do I say that those podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts that's what you have to say yeah 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 (laughs) I don't even know what that means. And there's an open invitation for any time that I can interview you. <gasps> Thank you Please. very much. Use this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is Susie Ruffle on Out. <laughs> there you go, see? It was that easy. Graham, Graham's asking so many questions on this edition of Out. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. What's going on? What's going on? And uh, this tour, because obviously the last one was filmed mm-hmm. and became a thing, is this one going to be filmed or do you, you see it live to avoid disappointment? <laughs> well, I, I think hopefully at some point someone might say do you want to film this? That's what happened with the last one. Amazon were like, do you want to put this on our thing? And I was like, yeah, that'd be lovely. But so it just depend whether I'll keep touring it and hopefully someone will and maybe someone won't. And if that's the case, then I'll have to, you know, feel shame. You'll have to, you'll have to just use your phone. <laughs> I'll have to just use my phone and clip it up myself. But no, currently we've not got any plans to, but I think hopefully maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. in a year we might find a way to film it. could you finish on the 15th of June? Yes. Does that mean that uh, you might remember it all in your in your head and take it to Edinburgh? No, I'm not going to take it to Edinburgh because um, I've already got plans to go to Ibiza with my friends. Okay, <laughs> No, I'm not going to go. I might do a short run at the Fringe, uh, but I've done quite a lot of uh, of, the, of that festival. I've done a lot of that it festival. Is funny, isn't it? The minute you don't have to do it. Bye bye. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. Have a great no, time. No, but actually, some people do genuinely love it. Yeah, and those people are crazy. <laughs> it's so it's so stressful. People. It's it, it become strangely competitive. You have to walk past a picture of your own face every day and see how many stars are next to your face. Like, oh, they think I'm this many stars. Oh, great. Yeah. And then you've got people coming in and critics and TV people and you've got to impress this person and you've got to impress that person you've got to go to a networking thing and, and I'm I'm not good at those sorts of things because I just I drink too much and then I think I'm going to be really charming and <laughs> Graham I'm not charming <laughs> 
have, have you have you had enough of a gap now that you can go back as an audience member? Oh, maybe. I think I might go and do a few nights. But you, I, I, you've been up there, don't you? You I, go up there and you watch stuff. I've started to go back. I hadn't been for about oh, twenty years, and now I've started to go back as an audience member. I really like it. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it can be great fun, and I've had wonderful nights up there and have wonderful runs up there. And I shouldn't really complain about it because it really gave me like a springboard to my career. But you know, I might go and do a short run this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're looking for a good night out, uh, the second leg of Susie Ruffles tour, Snappy, kicks off on the 15th of March, runs the 15th of June. Uh, check out where she's going to be and where you can get tickets. Uh, you go to Susie Ruffle, Susie Ruffle, Susie There you go. Uh, so, thank you so much for coming in to see us. My pleasure. Thank you for you. having me. There's still more to come, including a brand new game called Word Up. And we speak to Jessie Burton about her new book, Medusa. Let's get stuck in, shall we? Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good, good, good. Thank you very much for uh, bringing us Medusa. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how did you get the idea of doing this? Well, I think it's because I knew about her when I was younger, that this just this like monstrous person with snakes for hair, and that's all I knew. That's all I think most people know. <laughs> I think it's all yeah. anyone knows. Okay. And she turned men to stone. I, re- I remember that bit. And um, I, when I was thinking about something that I wanted to like revise and retell and explore the backstory of, I thought she would be a perfect subject, because who was she before she was made into a monster basically yeah and so uh, because i didn't know the story so i'm reading this story and i'm thinking well how changed is this yeah. from the original story it doesn't seem changed just seems like it, you're looking at it from a slightly different angle yeah absolutely i mean i i did a little bit of research about what had been written about her in greek myth and there really wasn't much except for that she was once described as a young beautiful woman and I thought that was really interesting, so I took that. But she's still the daughter of sea nymphs. She still has two Gorgon sisters who are really like, you know, the monsters of myth. <laughs> They've got massive wings and they eat things in the air. And they're all not that. lookers. No, no, I mean, you yeah. know, they're not the, the beauties of the family. And I just thought, here's a good chance to give a backstory to this girl. And so in the book, she talks first person to the reader. It's like she's quite energetic in her description. And she tells us about what happened when she gets kind of objectified for being so beautiful and then ultimately punished for it and turned into this monster and then what happens after that like what happens to her she goes to this island and is self-exiled and then it turns into this weird twisted love story very twisted yeah because in myth perseus does cut the head off the medusa as part of his hero's journey But in my one, I made Perseus this sort of 15-year-old boy who feels quite pressurised to be this macho, warrior, you know, bloodthirsty person. And actually, he feels quite frightened to do this task. And he meets this person on the other side of this rock who's hiding herself. And they sort of fall in love invisibly, just talking to each other about their hopes and dreams. So is that all your invention? That is my invention, that they meet before the kind of denouement of of whether or not Perseus is going to kill her. Because he doesn't know who she is when he meets her and falls in love with her. Wow. And has this given you kind of a a wet your appetite? Because, you know, there are so many of these these stories that would presumably... And also, I guess because these stories are so old, they're Mm. really robust. You can do a lot with them. I think with these kind of myths, they whatever generation you're living in, it reflects how you retell them, how you interpret them, really reflects the society that you're living in. Yes. So 
I mean, there are a lot. I mean, I wrote this book quite a few years ago, about five years ago, because I wanted to get it done before I wrote a big, long novel. Um, <laughs> very organised. Um, and then, of course, there have been so many, but I was sort of inspired by Madeleine Miller's Circe and Song of Achilles, which are kind of like Bibles to me. Um, but there are so many now. But I think it is because they, they have so much depth to them. Like you say, there's just so much in them. They're so rich. And yet there's a weird thing, and I noticed even in your version of it, I guess maybe because these stories have been distilled over so many, you know, centuries, that there's no fat on this story at all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In the, the, you know, just stuff happens. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, it, that's quite freeing as a writer. It's just like, it's quite epic. This happened and this happened and this is what it was like. It's, yeah, it's spare. And it was actually a joy to write something that's shorter. <laughs> yeah, just get it out there. So it's about 23,000 words long, which is short for me. Well, well, also, did you, I mean, at the end, did you go, oh, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> was there a slight sense of, oh, should I go back and put some, put some, more, put <laughs> some, some, you know, oh, the, the sea was lovely yeah, that day. Or... It was very green, very blue. <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, because it was um, designed to be like that, I, I didn't. I mean, the my ending of this myth is a bit different to the traditional um, because it is about, you know, uh, uh, Medusa's agency and her sort of sense of self and I, I had to make a decision. Was I going to change the ending of, of how we know it to be and how would that go? So dealing with that was enough and I just, you know, I wanted to create this sense of her being on this island and so there is description. You know. Well, you know, sorry, I'm not saying... <laughs> no, I know you're not. I know. <laughs> like some stick figure drawing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she went to the rock, yeah. she saw a boy. Yeah, I have, I have done it a bit more detailed than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. In fairness, you have. Yeah, no, but it, but I still. I but you. But you. You get my point. They are still quite distilled. These stories. Yeah, yeah. Because I suppose they are about elemental uh, issues or elemental things about us: grief, loss. Uh, envy, jealousy, destruction, love, sacrifice. These are massive themes. And it isn't easy necessarily to kind of distill that into something that feels human. Mm -hmm. Because this is the trick with, with the Greek myth. Magic things happen, unusual things happen. A girl has her hair turned into snakes, but I wanted to investigate what would that feel like, you know, to have all these snakes on your head and for people to call you disgusting. And so I kind of tried to get this balance of... The, the you know the monstrous and the mytholo mythological with the human and the snakes having names is that yeah. in the original no no that's me okay because that's another thing that's like something that's oh she had snakes she was hideous but maybe those snakes were pretty cool and maybe they spoke to different parts of her personality and how po-faced are kind of classicists about this? Do, do they are they kind of are they quite happy for you to kind of knock it about a bit, or are they are they very kind of you know a real sense of ownership of this? Oh well, I I don't read reviews, so um, I don't know what the kind of response was, but I think I do know um, that there was somebody who was quite uh, hesitant, somebody who was a classicist about this kind of as they view it like this almost like capitalization of. Um, of the Greek myths, you know, commodification of them. And she actually thought that this one was really, really good. And I thought having a, a classicist who's interested in feminism and capitalism to say that about mine, I was really happy. But you can't please everyone. And fundamentally, not everyone's going to read Ovid's originals or, you know, that they might take something like this and be introduced to a really old story and, and enjoy it. Because Stephen Fry's had huge success with yeah. retelling this but he does he just retell them he doesn't do this um my hunch is he probably retells them but i don't know um i did choose to re 
invented. Yeah. But mainly because the Medusa myth, as I said at the beginning, is quite slender. Like there's not much evidence because she was just a cipher for Perseus's heroics. So it was kind of the field was open to kind of really investigate what would she lives on the edge of night. That's the description in the original myth. What does that mean? Like, what's that like? Is it comfy? Is it light, dark? You know, so that kind of stuff. Yeah, I have um, put my own perspective on. But I, I, I would say that most writers who do retell a myth are absolutely there putting their own mark on it. But they are so solid that they can withstand it. Yeah. Well, it's like period films. When you look at a period film, you always know when it was made. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the hair normally always gives it the away. Hair, it's always the ringlets. <laughs> How stiff they are. <laughs> Um, and last year you brought out the sequel to the miniatures, yeah. which is that huge. You, I mean, was that your first novel? That was my first novel, yeah, back I mean, in twenty fourteen. Nuts, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> Still here. Yeah, first novel and boom. Yeah. Uh, did you resist writing a sequel or? Uh, well, I think probably unconsciously. Yeah, I felt you know I don't want to just do that that book I don't want to be known for just that I knew that I had so many other things I wanted to write but I think as the years went by and I dealt with that kind of the madness of that overnight success that exposure suddenly and I understood it and I understood how complex my reactions were to it I realized that the the world of the miniaturist and and now the world of the house fortune occupy a different part of my writing imagination or myself and I was ready to go back but I also and this might sound a little odd because the main character is called Nella I also realized Nella wasn't finished with me so I had this quite weird symbiotic relationship with this character who'd kind of changed my life and I was ready to go back to her and see if we were still friends and um, it all came back quite quickly and I was ready to bring her life on another 18 years. And what was, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by that idea of, you know, opening the laptop and kind of going back in to that mm. world. Uh, I mean, was it like putting on old slippers or? Yeah, old slippers, that was it. You know, and uh, sort of walking around in them and realising they still fit. And I, there were, her voice I just slipped into so easily, but also I wanted to make sure I was bringing her on, if you know what I mean, just like moving the plot on, not just rewriting the same book. But there were hesitations. I, I thought I was ready two years after The Miniaturist was published and I realised I wasn't and that it was too soon. Um, but, yeah, she's a kind of avatar in, of mine in through the fiction. And had you done the TV adaptation? No, I didn't adapt it, no. Oh, I see. I just sat in, in a little chair at the side gawping at all the acts <laughs> going, oh, my God, I can't believe it's real. <laughs> Did they, I mean, were you there all the whole time? No, no, that would, I think, put them off. I, I visited set twice. Um, yeah, and I met Anya, Taylor-Joy, who played Nella, and Romola Gary, and, and Papa Siedu, and Hayley, all the all the amazing actors, yeah. And did they have lots of questions for you, or were they just like, what's she doing here? Yeah, I think they're a bit like, <laughs> can we get on, please? No, they were just very friendly, and, and I wanted, when I met them, I said, look, don't please feel like you have to honour the book. And because I used to be an actress, I was just excited for them to reinterpret it and be quite iconoclastic with it and run with it and do what they wanted. And I think if I were an actor, if I was somebody else in a creative process and somebody trusted me like that, that's what I would have wanted. So, yeah. And I suppose, I mean, actors are one thing mm. where, you know, obviously uh, people in your head aren't the people you see, but locations and sets and things, was that jarring or was it kind of like... Oh, this is actually how I imagined it. Um, 
when I find when I saw the final version, I was like, this is so impressive because I think that Amsterdam of the 16, 1700s is so um, familiar to us because of the paintings that have survived and the fact that the city of Amsterdam has survived as it looks like in Vermeer paintings and the Hoek and other painters um, that it just felt because it's quite a filmic uh, it was in my mind it was quite filmic already it just felt like a weird um, continuation of that so it wasn't that much of a shock and you went to um, Central, didn't you? I did, yes. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, Did you too? Oh, hello. Yeah, our acting careers went really well, didn't oh, they? Oh, yeah, we did really well. <laughs> I think you did all right, Graham. You're doing OK, too. You're doing OK, too. <laughs> when did you When did you uh, decide to kind of knock it on the head? Oh, when... God, when the phone stopped ringing. Um, I was about 27 and I hadn't had an acting job for about a year and I thought, I'm going crazy. I feel like I'm putting not just my life on hold but my brain on. I just felt I was like corroding and I I started writing again because I always wrote as a little girl and as a teen but I always wanted to be an actor or an actress um, and that's when I started so around 2009 I started writing with uh, renewed force and I think tried to replace the dream of becoming a famous actor with being a famous writer. And were you not tempted just to kind of like, you know, carry a tray or something? Oh, I was in it. Actually, oh, were you I, in sorry, it? Sorry, I, I, I was an extra <laughs> and they made a big fuss about it and I wrote a big piece about it. And then when they actually showed it, you can see the tip of my nose. <laughs> like there's this scene and you just see my face turn and that's it. Oh, Humbling. What, what, what a cameo. What a I cameo. Yeah. Really one for the grandkids. <laughs> uh, Medusa, Medusa by Jesse Burton is out in paperback now. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for coming oh, to see you. us. Thank you, thank you. And uh, continued success to you. <laughs> Lovely you. to see you. Come on, baby, tell me what's the word up, word up. That's our new competition. Oh, yeah, it's your chance to win a Graham Norton with Waitrose gift box. That includes that reusable drinks cup. Very attractive and uh, useful. Waitrose Brut Champagne, number one. Salted caramel truffles. One age balsamic vinegar. It's a great prize. Uh, basically, if you're looking for the missing... Basically, you are looking for the missing word in the song click I'm about to play. Uh, let's get a caller on the line. I believe first up is David. Hello, David. Good morning, Graham. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. Yourself? I'm very well. I'm very excited. You are the first person ever to play Word Up. Ooh, exciting. I know, I know it is exciting. <laughs> and you might win a prize. So let me explain. Uh, basically, what's going to happen is I'm going to play a clip from a song, okay? And yes. a word yes. will be missing from the song. And you just have to identify that missing word, okay? okay. And if you correctly yes. identify it, you win the Waitrose goodie box. All right. Uh, so basically, this singer is celebrating her birthday today. It's Natalie Imbruglia, okay? okay? Uh, yes. You're a fan of Natalie? Um, when she was in Neighbours or whichever Aussie soap she was in, yeah. <laughs> no, was it Neighbours or was it the other one? Well, it was well, yeah, Neighbours, it was Neighbours. Uh, all right, this is a clip of the song. It was the first hit in 1997, OK? OK. So, David, yeah. I, and you can hear us clearly. Your line is good, right? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. OK, so we're going to play the clip. What is the missing word? Here we go. Okay, David, what word was missing from that clip? Uh, I think it's floor. You think it's floor. Okay. Should we play the clip and see if you're right? Here we go. Yes, please. Here we go. Floor! 
You're right, David. Well done, you. Thank you. <laughs> We're one for one, ladies and gentlemen. One for one. First caller, first winner. Excellent. Uh, well Fantastic. done, you, David. Anyone Thank you'd you. like to say hello to while you're on the uh, radio? Uh, my girlfriend Donna, but she won't hear me because she's currently on a girls' weekend away in lovely Blackpool. So wow! <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell her I spoke to. I'll tell her I spoke to you, Graham. Yeah, you tell her that. Yeah, her it'll, all, it'll all be a yeah. blur by the time she gets back from Blackpool. She'll believe anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 she will. She yeah, will. you chatted to Graham Norton. <laughs> uh, what have you got planned on your bachelor weekend? Then what are you doing tonight? Um, well, funnily enough, I've just finished playing golf. So now I've come home, <laughs> got the theme today, and I'm going to go walk the my spaniel. So oh. Two-year-old spaniel called Milo, and he's after a walk. So I'm going to go walk in them. Go so. do that and uh, keep him away from the goodie box because there is chocolate in it. So uh, congratulations, David. Thanks for playing Word Up. Uh, talk to you along the way. Take care now. Bye. Thank you. Cheers, Graham. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, have you clicked that follow button on all of our socials? We're also on TikTok. I know. Just look up Virgin Radio UK on all platforms to see everything from gorgeous dishes to Graham's guides. For now, speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.